Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Hey, listeners, and welcome to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He is going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Nate. Our guest today is Andy Bachman. He is a senior grid strategist at the National and Homeland Security Directorate at Idaho National Laboratory. His topic today is a book he's working on and a, a methodology that he's documenting in the book um, called The Consequence-Driven Cyber-Informed Engineering Methodology, CCE, Consequence-Driven Cyber-Informed Engineering. So let's, uh, let's listen in. So Andy, thank you for joining us. Um, we're going to be talking about Consequence-Driven Cyber-Informed Engineering, uh, the, the methodology. But can you start at the beginning? Where did this come from and, and uh, you know, how does it fit with the work you're doing at Idaho National Labs? Sure thing, Andrew. I'll be glad to. And uh, I'd like to say I appreciate you uh, welcoming me onto your podcast and also congratulate you on your ability for pronouncing consequence-driven cyber-informed engineering as fluently as you did. It usually takes people uh, weeks or months to be able to get it to roll off the tongue like that. In terms of its origins, uh, this comes uh, I think I'll come at this in a couple ways. One is I'm speaking to you uh, from my position at the Idaho National Lab, and that organization is the one that's doing the uh, the bulk of the the heavy lifting, getting this thing from concept to a practical practical methodology that can be implemented widely. Its true origins uh, come from uh, it's it's a little bit uh, sad, but it uh, comes from one of our close colleagues not just at INL, but in the entire industrial control system, cybersecurity uh, space, and that's Michael Asante, uh, who passed away uh, on July 5th of 2019 during his uh, second bout of cancer. He was really the catalyst, uh, along with a couple others, but I've got to consider him the primary driver, who uh, started off as a Navy Intel uh, specialist, and uh, went right to work figuring out the way ships were put together with their comms and computer systems and uh, came up with some really keen observations from his first, his first deployment and um, was in that position or shortly after that, after 9-11, the uh, U.S. government sort of had a, uh, a moment of reflection like, wow, people used airplanes as weapons. We, we never thought of that. That was a Failure of imagination is the is the catchphrase. They wanted to do some quick tests to see if there were any other failures of imagination looming around the corner that could be exploited by terrorists or other bad actors to cause grievous strategic damage to the to the nation. Mike was part of uh, a red team test group uh, running experiments using cyber means uh, going after grid and, and related assets. He told me that they found that they had just the most tremendous success at that time, right? So this is 2002, 2003, almost a full decade before the uh, deployment of the NERC SIPs for the bulk electric sector. There wasn't a heck of a lot being done to cybersecure those assets. And they had such a field day uh, 
that uh, that those reports that came from those studies eventually turned into legislation that begat the NERC SIPs. So it's Mike's early findings, and it's not him alone, but I think he's a good focal point to think about as a champion of CCE and and related industrial control system activities post post 9/11. And then INL uh, as the organization where he spent uh, several years. 2005 to 2007, approximately, maybe till 2008. Uh, this is where he and uh, colleagues devised and ran the Aurora test, which showed that you could use a keyboard from some distance and make a medium-sized generator kill, it to kill itself by getting it to take itself in and out of phase with the grid and uh, eventually cause it to, to shake itself apart. Idaho National Lab, is uh, the birthplace of nuclear energy. After World War II, uh, the United States demonstrated to itself and others that it could harness nuclear energy as a weapon form. And uh, Idaho Lab, which has had several different names over, over the years, I won't know them all, so I'll just keep calling it INL. Uh, they were charged with, can we make useful and safe energy out of these processes? And it turned out they could. And over the decades since, they have uh, built 52 nuclear test reactors to examine all kinds of things, different fuels, different designs, different safety measures. And uh, if all goes well, in the next couple of years, we'll see the, one of the first small modular reactors built in the, in the country. It will be sited at the lab. In addition to that, some even smaller uh, reactors called microreactors. So, um, I'd say the, t the connection between INL's nuclear work and industrial control system cybersecurity as practiced by Mike Asante and others is that, you know, these are inherently super dangerous processes and materials. And even though I wasn't there, from talking to some of the old timers, you definitely get a sense that they all felt that it was a good idea. It was a really good idea to both monitor and uh, make adjustments to these materials and their processes from as comfortable a distance as possible. So this is a thing you don't want to be manual. You don't want to tr treat this as a manual activity. So uh, they became control systems experts uh, as soon as anyone else on earth and developed theory and uh, policies for, for best control systems in nuclear and, and related environments. And then as they noticed uh, the onset of uh, small computer chips and the proliferation of software and networking, they uh, started to see that as those technologies worked their way into nuclear plants, that there were significant looming cybersecurity challenges. Certainly they didn't want anyone to have uh, any ability to insert themselves into uh, nuclear energy processes. So from those early observations was born, I would imagine some of the earliest people uh, in the country, if not the planet, to be conceiving of uh, ICS, cyber-physical type security challenges and, and mitigations that, that might help better defend them. Andy, uh, you spent a little while talking about uh, Mike Asante's contribution, uh, both to CCE and the, uh, the, the industry in general. Um, I did not know Mike well. You know, I met him a handful of times. Um, and 
really, it wasn't until he passed away that I learned, uh, you know, some of really how influential he'd been in the industry. So, you know, what I did know was that, that uh, you know, back in, what was it, 2009, I think, he sent out a letter when he was the head of the NERC SIP program. He sent out a controversial letter to uh, power companies basically saying, well, you know, the first phase of NERC SIP is done. You have figured out which of your computers you need to protect using the new standard. Many of you have reported zero computers that are worth protecting. Um, you know, we're going to review how you've done this, and you're probably going to wind up with more than zero computers to protect. This was a very controversial letter because he was basically calling the industry on, you know, uh, what you just reported here doesn't really make sense. And in fact, led to a complete rewrite of the rules for how you decide which computers are, are how important to the grid. Uh, you know, that, that, that discrepancy, that, that uh, you know, a perceived flaw in the, in the methodology. Um, the other thing that that uh, you know I learned after he'd passed from people who had you know uh, attended his funeral and had been talking about his contributions, um, you know, they I can't remember who told me this, but um, you know I remember one gentleman telling me, yeah, you know, been, we've been active in the in the space for a very long time, and time and again we would look around and say, oh, here's a situation. We need to do something about this situation. We need to, you know, brief the the congressional and Senate decision makers. We need to, to uh, you know, launch an initiative. We need to get a congressional funding approval. We need to start wheels turning in the Department of Energy and and uh, and do things. And they would start, and discover that Mike had been there three years earlier. He'd already briefed everybody. He already had the the funding almost there. The initiative was was you know was getting started. He was years ahead of, of of a lot of people, and you know I think his uh, the 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 significance of his of his contributions sort of continued to to come to light as uh, you know the work he'd done behind the scenes uh, you know turns into programs and and initiatives uh, out out in the public. And Andy also mentioned uh, the 2008 INL Aurora test, which has played heavily into one or two of our past episodes. And, uh, and, and now we know that Mike was pretty much involved in, in the management and execution of the test. That's right. I mean, I didn't know that until Andy told me. I, I, I still don't know what role he had, but um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if he were one of the driving forces behind it. I mean, I spoke to one of the engineers, the protection engineer who had identified the possibility and brought it to the attention of Idaho National Labs. I never knew any of the names of the people at the labs who heard, you know, the the problem being described and then said, we have to do this. And, you know, like I said, got the funding, got the initiative started, got the whole thing going. You know, given his reputation, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Mike was behind the whole thing there. And before we move on, Andy just touched on uh, nuclear. Nuclear seems like the kind of field where cybersecurity really, really matters. Um, but Andrew, my question sort of when this, this comes up is, is nuclear, I don't know if this makes sense, but it's kind of its own thing. I'm wondering if the kind of cybersecurity, the character of the cybersecurity that would apply to nuclear power plants would apply in the same way to manufacturing and petrochemical? That's a good question. A lot of people legitimately look at nuclear and say, oh, that's nuclear. Nuclear is different. And it is. The, the consequences of 
a failure of safety systems or you know critical systems in the nuclear space is a massive uh, radiation release and you know it's very very bad um, but you know I work at waterfall we work with a lot of nuclear sites I've been working with nuclear folks for a decade now and what I've observed is that they tend to be only about five six seven years no more than that ahead of the rest of the world cybersecurity wise the cybersecurity landscape is changing so fast. Yeah, the nukes are out ahead, but basically whatever they're talking about today, we're all gonna be talking about five, six years from now. So um, no, I think the, the, uh, the, the connection between nuclear and cybersecurity is really good. And you know, the fact that INL is coming out with CCE now, I'm guessing means that in five or six years, everyone's gonna be talking about CCE. That's uh, that's very interesting, and and I agree that you know uh, Michael's influence on on the whole space has been huge. Um, can you talk about consequence-centered engineering? Where does it fit? Is this is this the pinnacle of the work you've done so far? Is this sort of the the cutting edge? Is this something more practical? Where where does it fit? And if you could start, you know, what is it? How does it work? CCE is a methodology, and uh, even that word isn't necessarily comfortable for everybody. Basically, it means it's a way of doing things uh, to produce to produce better outcomes, or a different a different way of doing things that we do now to produce hopefully better outcomes. In this particular case, uh, one of the things I've, I've described in its early days is CCE is not for everyone. In fact, it's for hardly anyone. The original motivation for its development. And the uh, early use cases had only to do with protecting the holiest of holy critical infrastructure. So it's definitely for critical infrastructure. And at least in my experience, I tend to think of that as uh, the most important industrial uh, organ industrial process using organizations. Granted, uh, DHS and others will identify uh, non-industrial sectors as critical, like like finance. But uh, for me, there's maybe a dozen that rely somewhat or heavily on industrial control systems. And it's for critical infrastructures that you'll see CCE applied uh, with uh, biggest benefit. Like I said, in, in its initial um, conception, it was for a comparative handful of the most critical infrastructure organizations in, in the United States, and you could say in, in any nation trying to, trying to use it. But as we're putting it to practice, uh, electric utilities and water utilities with the, some military organizations and more, uh, we're finding that not only it's not just uh, ha doesn't just have efficacy for the highest national security concerns, but other organizations and even other countries are taking it and running with it and reporting they're having good results. Admittedly, Andrew, I've already forgotten what CCE stands for. It's consequences something something. That's right. It's it's uh, consequence driven cyber informed engineering. And you know, I've I have the the benefit of having listened to the entire you know uh, Andy Bachman recording already, so I know what he's going to say. And what I will you know uh, what I'll tease you with here is um, I think they chose the name very deliberately. Um, this is not cybersecurity. This is engineering. 
in the same sense that the uh, security PHA review from the uh, Jim McGlone and uh, his colleagues at Conexus, you know, in the same sense that that methodology is about engineering, about the security stuff to do with engineering. So I think they, they chose the engineering term very, very specifically. And they're saying, yeah, this is consequence driven engineering because you care about the consequences and it's cyber informed. So we're, we're looking at the cybersecurity milieu of engineering. So I think that's, that's telling and sort of a, a presages what, what he's going into now. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue though. No, we just say CCE. That's a great teaser. Um, we still ha- we still need to understand what is it. Can you can you tell us what it is and and how it works? So so we can start thinking about where you know we might want to apply it as you know people involved in the industry. Okay, sure thing, Andrew, and, and good point. I'll tell you uh, what it is first by differentiating it from what we're doing now, generally speaking, and then I'll give you its four the four parts of the methodology, which I think goes a long way to explain. Uh, in a deeper level of detail. Uh, first of all, uh, and I think Dale Peterson from Digital Bond takes issue with this, and, and maybe others do too, I tend to position the sum total of all that we're doing now in industrial control system security as cyber hygiene. If you have a different term for that, that's fine. But uh, for me, that means using to the best of our ability all the different best practices that come from SANS and other types of uh, consulting and, and trade groups. Uh, it means going to the RSA conference every year and finding what's the latest, greatest new security technology that might bring something extra that you didn't have before. It means training all your people, uh, rank and file, don't click on that link. And how do we respond and recover from uh, these days ransomware and other types of threats? It means setting up a good governance system so that you have top down authority to be able to do what needs to be done as you're trying to build out a, a more robust security program. So for me, that's cyber hygiene. And uh, it's necessary. I'll probably repeat it uh, once or twice before we're done. You need to perform cyber hygiene to the very best of your ability. It's a job that never ends. If you don't do that, then you're going to repeated, be hit repeatedly, be all types of uh, cyber intrusions, flotsam, jetsam, uncertainty, etc. Um, so you must do that. I wanted to say a few words be- before we, we carry on with, uh, with Andy's answer. I wanted to say a few words about the, the term cyber hygiene. It is a controversial term. It's not well defined in the industry. So, uh, for example, in some of the writing I've done, I have described cyber hygiene as anything you would do on a home network, anything you would do to a personal computer, which means antivirus, you know, automatic updates, you've got a firewall on your home network, nothing gets in, whatever you want can get out. Um, you know, the, the very basic stuff, don't, don't click on, on, you know, foolish links, this kind of stuff is, is the basic stuff. Um, other people have described cyber hygiene other ways. The way that Andy just described it is different. He's basically saying cyber hygiene is all of the normal stuff. It's everything in the ISA standard. It's everything in your, uh, you know, SANS top 20 list. It's everything that you do to, I would guess, IT networks and even some of the stuff you do to to operations networks. Um, so it's much more than 
the sort of derogatory term that I've used saying it's it's you know it's the very basics it's the bare minimum but you know because there are people out there like me who are using it that way it, it sort of has a negative connotation so I'm not surprised he gets a little pushback on his use of the term but he had to use you know I'm guessing he had to use a term to describe all of the normal stuff that people do to protect networks and he's going to be describing you know the new and different stuff in CCE. It sounds like what we're about to get into are really significant consequences to even critical industries. Andrew, in your experience, to what extent can major cyber events be caused by the kinds of problems that would be fixed by cyber hygiene? Is it not that more serious, uh, fundamental operations-centric vulnerabilities are what cause major critical uh, events to occur, or can little things in the IT network have chain reactions that lead to serious consequences in the end? Um, you know, usually I'm the one to ask you know complicated questions and give complicated answers. You've you've just <laughs> you just proved me wrong. <laughs> what I will repeat is that I understand cyber hygiene to be at least everything that normal people do on normal IT networks. Um, you know, they use antivirus, they have security monitoring, they, they use, you know, device control, they do asset inventories, they do security assessments, they have policies and procedures and training much more than you would do on a home network. So his cyber hygiene is sort of everything that you do normal is my understanding. And it's quite a bit of stuff. But the question is, you know, how often are IT networks breached? You know, how many times do you hear about horrible breaches of, oh, look, another 10 million, you know, consumer records were released into the public and the bad guys are stealing identities, blah, blah, blah. How often does that happen? It happens far too regularly if the consequences were something that, you know, you cannot recover from. I mean, you, you know, the, 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 the cliche I use is, is uh, you cannot restore uh, human lives, damaged equipment or environmental disasters from backups the way you can clean out, erase, recover uh, an IT network and then deal with the, uh, the lawsuits that, that have arisen. This, you know, some of these consequences are just worse. And so you need something in addition to all of the usual stuff people do on IT networks to address those deeper consequences is, is my understanding of where he's going. All right, let's get into the weeds of it. CCE, here we go. Is an al- is not not an alternative to that. You need to keep doing that, uh, but it's certainly a supplement, and it's designed to protect the most important things inside of an organization, the things that simply must not fail. So I'll tell you what. I'll I'll give you the four phases of the methodology. First, I'll name them, uh, and then I'll I'll do a little bit of detail. Uh, the first one is called phase. Phase one is called consequence prioritization. The, in, in essence, we will approach the CEO or the general or admiral and their their uh, top lieutenants and say, "What would uh, what would have to happen if you were trying to kill your company or kill your mission if you're in the military? What would what would you aim for? What would be the processes or functions that if they were taken out for more than a couple days?" Uh, would cause you uh, to no longer uh, exist. You'd be bankrupt, you'd be out of business, or your military mission would be rendered inert, essentially. So that's consequence prioritization. We develop scenarios. 
Uh, we develop uh, what we call high consequence events with a means of scoring them so you can uh, rack and stack them and ultimately identify a handful of them that you can then take through the rest of the methodology because you can't, we can't do the whole pass through the four phases with everything that seems important while we're still training people on how to do it in the first place. This uh, this approach, you know, so far, uh, you know, when we're talking about about consequences, um, seems to have a lot in common at this level with the security PHA review, because if you ask asset owners or operators um, what are the most serious consequences they're trying to avoid, first and foremost, it's almost always safety, and that, of course, is what the the, the security PHA review episode was all about. It was all about safety systems. What is different here is that I'm hearing from, from Andy that there may be other very high priority items in addition to safety or maybe even instead of safety. I mean, in the military, I'm not, you know, I, I never served in the military, but, you know, my understanding of that kind of decision making is that in some cases, there's the concept of acceptable losses. You're willing to, you know, uh, put people at risk in order to achieve uh, a greater and, and very important objective. And so safety may not be your highest priority. The mission may be the highest priority. What's an industrial-related real-life example that you can give me to this, this principle? I'll give you the example that Andy mentioned already, which is the Aurora test. Um, yes, safety is vitally important, but um, if a cyber attack has destroyed a generator or three, uh, it doesn't matter if you restore the, the PLCs and the control systems from backup, the generator's dead. You're, you're out of action. So, you know, what I observe in the industrial space is that safety is generally the highest priority. Equipment protection is generally the next highest priority. And then comes continuous correct, efficient operations as sort of the, the third priority. The, the first one is pretty much always called safety, and the next two are sometimes wrapped up in what's called reliability. The second phase is called system of systems analysis or system of system breakdown. And uh, what makes, whereas phase one is different for its ruthless prioritization on the handful of things that matter most, uh, phase two is different in that it seeks to identify all the hardware and software and firmware, the communications and the human processes and the supply chain aspects, uh, the whole ecosystem uh, of technology and human process that supports those things that must not fail that were identified in phase one. You're going down to a level of detail that most folks in industrial organizations don't go to. So, for example, if it's a particular device, you'll be capturing its hardware characteristics in detail, and then you'll be asking, okay, what operating system, make, model, version, patch level, DLL, device drivers, and everything else that an adversary would uh, learn as they're doing their, as they're loitering and doing their surveillance to see what they could take advantage of, whether it's a, a known vulnerability or uh, in uh, uh, nation-state adversary zero days, or in Dale Peterson's uh, uh, lexicon, the the fact that many of these systems are insecure by design, and you don't even really need to be a hacker. You just take advantage of 
existing functionality that's built in in the systems uh what's called uh, living off the land and uh act that way so that's phase two phase and that and that's a lot of work to get to that level of detail and capture it uh one other part before i move on to phase three is we do uh, open open source analysis or open os int for open source intelligence uh, which means not a lot of companies are aware of this but there's a tremendous amount of information on the internet about the types of systems and processes uh, that are that are inside the walls of a plant or that uh, electric or water utility uses to to run itself and these things are put online by business partners and by vendors and sometimes by employees on LinkedIn and other forms of social media. One of the first things the adversary will do is uh, hit the internet and find just an amazingly rich and robust amount of material they can use to begin to understand the, the lay of the land uh, in, their, in their target. And here I see a bunch of parallels with the, the Matt Gibson EPRI episode where he's talking about understand your systems better than your attackers do. And, you know, what I hear uh, Andy saying in the CCE methodology is that they've laid out in some detail what exactly that means, what, you know, uh, a checklist of everything you need to consider so that you understand your system really thoroughly and can, you know, understand, you know, in the next step vulnerabilities or... Um, you know, uh, attack patterns that it might it, that that might work on the system. You you have to understand what you have. Um, you have to understand how the attackers are going to see it as well. Yeah, I get that, Andrew. But something that that he mentioned at the end there is kind of gnawing at me, which is Andy describes how there's sort of open source intelligence on the internet, and all these folks are, are putting information out there. Uh, why? If we know that this is sensitive operational technology and we know that hackers can leverage such information, what's the point of putting it out in the public? I think that uh, most people just don't think about security when they put this stuff out in the public. Um, th this, is, this is a, if I may, this is a controversial uh, uh, topic in, in, with some experts. There are experts who say, like Andy I think is implying, don't tell anybody how your stuff works or, you know, you're giving them a leg up. And he's right. Um, there are other voices who say, look, if the only way you think you're going to be secure is by hiding what you do and what you do is just weak, well, then, of course, you don't want to tell anybody you're doing really weak stuff. But the fact that you've hidden that you're doing weak stuff isn't going to help you. So what you should have is a system so robust that even if people did know how it worked, they still wouldn't be able to get in. So these, you know, these, these voices argue with each other. Um, but, you know, I take his point that if the information's out there, it does give your attackers a leg up. It, it makes their jobs easier instead of you know, X work they have to do to come after you. You know, it's X minus Delta, where Delta is whatever they can find out on the internet. And and the depressing bit is that, you know, there really is a lot of stuff out on the internet. I mean, you, you might say, I'm interested in, uh, you know, in the, the site, you know, I live in Calgary, the, the, the Calgary power plant, whatever it is. You might Google Calgary power plant and see what you can find. That's not how these guys do it. They would... Uh, go to LinkedIn, they would go to Facebook, they would find people who work in the Calgary power plant. And they would see what they've got, you know, what, what they've said about their work. You know, I just finished uh, a big project deploying, you know, control system X. 
you know, uh, from GE or from Wonderware. Now you've got a clue as to what's deployed at the power plant. What else did they say about it? On, you know, on LinkedIn, people basically have resumes posted. Go to their resumes and see what systems they say they worked with when they were at the Calgary power plant. Oh, look, that's the systems they're using. Now you go to the vendors' websites for those systems. Most of these vendors have user group conferences. The users get up and boast about the wonderful things they've done with the vendor's product, and they learn from each other how to use the product more effectively. Search those presentations. A lot of the times those presentations are available on the internet. Search the presentations for presentations from the site you want to attack. Oh, look, I've got 37 slides that explain in painful detail how this thing was deployed. So there is a lot of information out there. It does make our attackers' lives easier. Um, you do make their lives a little bit harder if you, if you, you know, just aren't so forthcoming about all of these details. You know, I, I, I take that point. I, I still have two things. Number one, you mentioned that, you know, you should have systems that are reliable enough uh, or safe enough that even if they're public knowledge, they're still secure against hackers. Can we not have both robust systems and secret systems to layer uh, our security on top of each other. Number two, um, I still haven't heard a real benefit to sharing this information out in the public domain other than, of course, just, just bragging. So let me answer your, your, your first question. Uh, yeah, like I said, um, I think Andy's taken the position which you just described, which is don't give your attackers this leg up. You know, don't share that information. Be a little less forthcoming, guys. And uh, to your point of, you know, I said the word boasting in, in my answer. That's a bit glib. Um, really, it's a kind of information sharing. If people share how they use a particular system, they can learn from each other and become more efficient. I mean, why do people deploy CPUs in the first place? Why do they deploy software in the first place? It's not because it's fun. They do it because it saves money, because everything, you know, has become more efficient. If you look at, you know, what did pick anything. What did a washing machine cost in terms of the average number of hours of labor that a laborer, you know, that, a, uh, you know, the average person had to work in order to buy a washing machine in 1960? And what's it cost today in terms of the number of hours of labor? The cost has come down. It didn't come down by accident. It came down through automation. Computers are all about automation. Learning from each other how to do automation more effectively you know, has real business benefits. So there is a pressure to share information. Um, you know, we, we, we have to balance that need against this, you know, the, the rapidly rising awareness of how much it's costing us. You know, we've been, we've been focused on the benefits for 30 years. In the last decade, we've started to understand some of the costs and, you know, people's willingness to share some of this information is, is, uh, is diminishing. Phase three is uh, all about uh, target. We, we've developed our targets now, and so now we're thinking like an adversary. We are. Uh, we've asked up front, what would it take to kill your company? In phase three, we're building the kill chains. Some people may be familiar with the cyber kill ch chain first developed by Lockheed, or then the Mike Asante and Rob Lee extension of that for industrial control systems which has a, a couple different phases to it. And essentially this is the core, developing the, the choreography or the recipe for how you would execute from earliest steps 
to uh, pulling the trigger and delivering delivering the payload to create the uh, extremely negative effect. Um, that's what uh, phase phase three is all about. Um, the uh, the title of that phase is consequence targeting, and so there you are developing the different attacks. You're testing them out and prioritizing them by order of ease and confidence. So the first one that a company would be worried about would be an attack that had relatively few steps and very high confidence that they would be able to achieve their objective. Another uh, kill chain might have more steps and there'd be parts of it that had some uncertainty to them. And so one thing we say is, you know, you don't, you don't get as a, as an adversary or as an attacker, you don't get any extra credit for taking the scenic route to create, to doing your objectives. In one sense, it's good to think of adversaries as business people as well, just like the defenders are. And they're trying to do the most efficient. They're trying to find the most efficient ways of getting their job done. So uh, phase three has the prioritization aspect as well. And it's about uh, developing and then rank ordering the attacks that could create those unacceptable consequences up front um, and having those ready. What Andy's just said makes enormous sense to me. I mean, we've, we've talked about this in, in previous episodes, for example, the, uh, the Mark Fabro episode on, on uh, you know, be brave with your risk assessments. Um, he talked about uh, the result of a risk assessment always including a description of a handful of attack scenarios the simplest attack scenarios with serious consequences that are you know likely enough to succeed that the business regards them as as unacceptable risks you know so it, it, it's a function of of uh, of consequence of the the simplicity of the attack scenario and how likely that that scenario is to succeed given the current security posture so you know i agree completely with with uh, this approach i think it 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 uh, it's a very good approach to producing a risk assessment result that business decision makers are going to understand and, and be able to act on phase 4 is where we now know that there are demonstrable ways to basically take out a company or take out a military mission. And so here's where we bring in engineered solutions. Uh, we call them mitigations and protections. It's just the generic name of the, of the phase. The thing that's different about it is instead of, now that we know what the targets are and how they could be used against us or misused, misoperated, um, instead of turning to more high-tech computer technology, uh, instead of looking at blockchain or quantum cryptography, et cetera, et cetera, here we're, we're going back to uh, solutions that are inspired by engineering first principles. We're talking about designing uh, backstops and fail-safes uh, that even if the adversary were to learn everything they needed to execute the attack, and push the button and, and basically uh, uh, deliver the payload that there would be an engineering solution, typically non-digital, that the adversary wouldn't even see. It would be behind the scenes, but it would make sure that the high value, long lead time to replace equipment, maybe it's a couple, couple pieces, maybe it's a horizontal attack and it's hundreds or thousands of different elements 
that would make sure that those things uh, would fail safely, uh, go into a safe state, and not destroy themselves, uh, so that you could live to fight another day and there, thereby gain the type of resilience that, that people are seeking. Andrew, it already feels like forever since we were on phase one. Could you give us a quick summary of the four phases that Andy just talked about? Sure. Uh, Phase one, he called consequence prioritization. I figure out what are the worst things that you're trying to avoid. Produce a small list of the very worst. Phase two was systems of systems analysis, which is basically know your systems, know them really well, know them better than your attackers. So consequences first. Uh, produce a small result. What are the worst things you care about? Systems of systems produce very detailed information about your systems. Phase three is consequence targeting. Understand the kill chain. How would you get through these systems to bring about those consequences? And four is now that you know the attack chains um, and you know which which ones are are the simplest attack chains that are are you know reaching your consequences through your systems. Design some solutions. And the sense I had is that the the solutions he's talking about are engineering solutions, physical solutions. We're talking overpressure valves, you know. We're talking um, uh, uh, non von Neumann architectures, like we we uh, we saw in the Epri simple architecture. Basically, digital logic strung into into a chain, and there's only one thing it can do, and that's prevent the generator from flying apart. So, consequences: understand your systems. Um, attack paths, and then what are we going to do about those attack paths so that even if the attack paths succeed, our consequences are still reliably prevented. Right. Now, minor thing before we continue, we've had, I don't know, 30 episodes or so of this show, and I think that Andy's the first person to even mention the terms blockchain and quantum crypto. What is it exactly that uh, he's, he's hesitating against in terms of using emerging technologies to defend ourselves and our plants? Well, I don't think he's saying don't use them. I think what he's saying is that these are not engineering solutions. These are you know, more IT solutions, they, they are, I, I'm guessing he would put them in with hygiene. And, you know, he's not saying don't do hygiene. Uh, there's a double negative there. I, sh- I should rephrase that. What he's saying is do hygiene, do all of it. As hygiene improves with blockchain and quantum crypto, do more of it. But hygiene is not going to save you. Put, no, you know, put a, an overpressure valve on your boiler so it doesn't blow up. I heard you talk about... Uh, you know, the Aurora attack. The Aurora attack um, was not so much a safety consequence. It was it was still a physical consequence. I mean, the lights went out and the generator was destroyed. So, you know, in my experience, there, there tend to be three levels of um, consequence concern at most, uh, you know, civilian industrial sites. I'm not so familiar with military. Uh, safety first, don't kill anyone, don't cause a public safety incident. Uh, you know, don't destroy the environment utterly um, to uh, physical equipment protection. Don't damage the equipment. If you damage the equipment, well, now you're going to be down for who knows how many months. And for a critical infrastructure like the power grid, this is a big deal. And number three is don't go down in the first place. Reliability. So safety, equipment, and then reliability. Um, you know, the, 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 the security PHA and your, your initial comments talked a lot about safety, um, but it sounds like you've got something for equipment protection. Uh, can you speak to that, especially in light of the fact that most of the equipment protection gear 
in the power grid is software right now. It's protective relays, which are computers. How does your stuff fit into there? Yeah, they didn't used to be computers, right? They used to be, uh, the grid used to be a world of uh, electromechanical uh, functions and, and physics. And that has been subsumed, as the famous saying goes, software will eat the world. And it has largely eaten the grid. I think CC is a bit of a pushback on that, uh, saying that's going to happen. It's, w- there's so many benefits, economic and otherwise, to uh, modernization with digital uh, technology, with automation. Um, it's just going to happen. And, and CCE, INL and CC aren't trying to fight that. Uh, that's just, that's just going to happen, and there's a lot of goodness there. We're just trying to say for certain things that simply cannot fail or cannot be allowed to be destroyed, uh, because it would take too long to replace them, and you'd be dead before they ever got replaced. Uh, in other words, huge generators. Um, in other words, big transformers and the protective relays, the digital protective protective relays uh, that you referenced, when they're out there and they're scattered across a giant remote distance in the hundreds of thousands or millions, um, it's simply unacceptable to allow them to be held at any level of cyber risk. And so we're looking for different ways using engineering processes to backstop them. They're still going to be digital. The plants are still going to be controlled by software. Uh, They're still going to be increasingly uh, using uh, automation and, and performing autonomously. It's just that if and when someone's able to reach them, and uh, we all know that uh, uh, this is a mantra of my INL colleagues, but increasingly I'm finding it's, be- it's becoming accepted uh, in our community that certain adversaries, if they want access into critical infrastructure, they're in, uh, despite the best cyber hygiene, uh, which may slow them down. As Mike Asante says uh, when, I, when I cite him in the book, the good cyber hygiene uh, is very necessary, but registered as, as only a speed bump for uh, the most capable cyber cyber attackers. So you need to have it, but you have to be aware that you will be targeted if you're critical infrastructure. If you are targeted, you will be compromised. And if you can accept both those things, and we can demonstrate them to people, and uh, a lot of folks have seen this themselves, um, there are, with CCE, there are now some things you can do to be in a much stronger position uh, when, if and when an adversary decided to act on that type of access that they have. One way, I think one, one nice thing, Andrew, here that informs this, this whole discussion a little bit is a uh, quote that, that I pulled from the CEO of one of the first companies that went through CCE. And he was, uh, he became so enthusiastic about it. He agreed to go up to Washington and speak in the House and in the Senate uh, to describe his experience to, to staffers up there. And uh, the part that one of the parts that stuck with me most was when he said, uh, you know, we're a giant electric utility. Um, we're used to disruption. We're used to big storms and flooding. And so uh, thanks to uh, mutual assistance programs and our own preparation and stockpiling of equipment, um, we're ready to, to have uh, power outages and then scramble using uh, tried and true uh, processes to to bring the electricity back up as quickly as possible. It doesn't it doesn't kill them is what he's saying. Uh, they they can handle some disruption. What he can't handle, he said, 
is destruction of long lead times for a player repair critical capital equipment. And that's back when I was referencing uh, biggest generators, biggest transformers, and the uh, horizontal risk of protective relays that are so widely dispersed and in such great number that to roll trucks to, uh, to fix them or to replace them uh, simply uh, would be the work of, of many months at best. And that's too long for a company to be, to be out. So that, again, that quote reduces to, I can handle disruption, but I can't handle destruction. Um, and CCE is designed to both identify the things that you couldn't handle the destruction of, uh, and then develop engineered approaches for making sure that if they ever were reached by digital means, bad actors, et cetera, that uh, that bad day wouldn't become a very bad day. If you ask me the way that Andy just summarized the uh, the Aurora attack, you know, scenario there, we can handle disruption, we can't handle destruction. To me, that's brilliant. That That sums it up in a nutshell. And I don't disagree with either of you, though it occurs to me that maybe disruption wouldn't be easily handled in every industry. I'm thinking, for example, electric, where even disruption can cause really safety critical consequences. Well, you're right. And, you know, in, in electric, um, if you have too long a power outage in, in a large population center, um, you you have public safety threats. I mean, the traffic lights don't work. Ambulances can't get where they're going. Um, you know, pumps don't work. Eventually you run out of water and you can't flush your toilet, much less have anything to drink. It, you know, it, it becomes a real public safety threat after a period of time. Um, you know, I think two things. One is that, that um, if there's been no destruction, then these, uh, these utilities are saying they do have, have uh, mechanisms in place to rapidly restore from uh, disruption. But they would rather not be disrupted in the first place. So, you know, I've worked with a lot of power utilities in North America. Uh, you know, I would argue that the, the, the sites I work with are on, if you like, the high end of the bell curve, a bell curve of, you know, how strong is their security. And they do stuff like CCE, though they don't call it CCE. You know, CCE is, is putting a lot of stuff together and documenting it really well the first time. Is, is my understanding. But they do a bunch of this stuff already and they take, you know, some fairly, you know, some, some very strong measures in addition to classic IT style cyber hygiene. They take some very strong measures in order to prevent even cyber disruption, though, you know, they still have to deal with hurricanes occasionally. You put a summary of this methodology out on uh, Harvard Business Review, uh, uh, what, 18 months ago. Um, you know, in there, you point out correctly that all software can be hacked. It doesn't matter how secure you are. Um, it's always possible to imagine a way in. I mean, the, the old saw, given enough time, money, and talent, nothing is secure. But by that measure, given enough time, money, and talent, nothing is safe either. Um, what you've done here, it seems like, is show people how to raise the bar higher than uh, sort of a, a pure software play would give you. But it begs the question, how high should the bar be? Now, you know, for something like a nuclear generator, well, it had better be really, really high. But for mere mortals producing, I don't know, you know, uh, uh, a utility that produces 5% of the North American grid's power, 
How high should the bar be? What, you know, you can always imagine an attack that will drop a bomb on a generator and destroy the generator. Um, where, where should people be drawing the line here? Yeah, I think part of it is it depends on your perspective. If we put our uh, hats on and now we're, we're running a country, uh, so let's say we're in mission assurance, uh, either for the military or um, economic assurance for, for a nation. We want to make sure our key industries are sound, that they can take some hits, but that beyond a certain point, it's unacceptable. It will cause grievous damage to the, to the national interest, right? So for those folks, I'm talking about how high to raise the bar. Uh, it's their job to understand uh, what the absolutely most important uh, processes and functions in the nation are, which owners and operators of assets, et cetera, are charged with operating them and to make sure that they're given an extra level of attention beyond whatever they might have done on their own in their own corporate best interest. You can think of the NERC SIPs in the United States like that, that we implemented those uh, post 9-11 with a dawning realization of cyber risk. Um, I think we did that because we weren't sure how fast and how well the uh, folks in those industries, whether they're monopolies or market driven, we weren't sure that they would go that to that extent on their own. So we kind of gave them some carrots and sticks to get them there. If you're coming at it with a hat on of a CEO, a CFO, a board of director uh, type uh, person in a large industrial company, and it could be, you know, dispersed to right, multi-state, could be international. Uh, now it's all about your your risk tolerance and how seriously you're taking Cyber risk, uh, you know, what I usually say is it's um, when, cyber, when cyber stuff started to uh, appear, uh, pretty much, you know, we have Clifford Stahl and the, the cuckoo's egg in the late 80s. But once we have the widespread adoption of PCs and local area networks and the software you mentioned starting to really proliferate, um, it, it, it first blush, it started off as a nuisance level threat, at least I think when viewed from the, the board level. And so we treated it with that much um, uh, effort and investment, meaning not that much at first, because all it really was was like a, like a mosquito that could buzz around us and annoy us. However, over the years since then, now we're like, what, uh, three decades past uh, approximate time. Now it's clearly a strategic level risk to business in that everything we do is almost entirely reliant on the uh, integrity and performance and reliability of our compute systems. One of the things that uh, I talked about at S4 this year in uh, 2020, uh, Dale asked me to do, to give a talk just before the conference on considering a consequence focused or consequence heavy uh, form of, uh, of determining risk. Uh, a modification to the classic risk equation, risk management equation, risk equals uh, impact times likelihood. And uh, so I made it so that uh, likelihood, we covered this earlier in our conversation, the likelihood of having, of being attacked successfully, being compromised by someone with significant capabilities. If you're in critical infrastructure, the likelihood is very high uh, that you will be a target and it's very likely that even if you had really good hygiene, you'll be compromised and there's someone living in your systems and networks right now 
doing surveillance and learning about you, adding to what they've learned through open source, and potentially constructing something that could bring about a very, very bad, bad day for you. So to the extent that senior leaders now in uh, commerce and in uh, government are aware of that and it can begin to accept some of these new realities that have emerged, um, something like CCE is actually quite appropriate. The mitigations at the end of the process, and the process typically will take anywhere between um, uh, a few months up to a year, depending on how complex and widespread the organization is. Uh, the mitigations at the end, which are engineered uh, and not throwing more firewalls at it or more SIMs at it, um, can be actually not very expensive, surprisingly inexpensive. Uh, and it certainly varies. I don't want to make it sound like it's a, a wholly a wholly affordable thing to do. It all it all depends on what you choose to do with it. But yeah, you, it can be it can be something that produces demonstrably, or even you would say deterministically. Uh, demonstrable protections uh, that can give folks more confidence than they ever had before that they could be a target of a nation state level attack and live to live to play another day. Another thing I would say to inform those decision makers who are trying to decide how much risk they can live with is for them to not uh, allow themselves to be fooled. Some folks, when you ask them and you've heard, you've heard CEOs paraphrase this way uh, with, Hey, look, our job is to protect against uh, cyber hackers, people trying to do fraud, and other types of criminal groups against us. If a nation state were to attach a, attack us, well, then that's, that's not our job, right? That's where the U.S. government or whatever federal government of whatever country you're in, that's their job to protect us. And then another, another sort of easy out in terms of uh, how, high, how high a bar we need to, to set is Oh, don't worry. We're, uh, what's it called when you use, uh, we're, tra we're transferring our risk to insurance. So we have cyber insurance now that'll cover us in case we're attacked. Uh, maybe not completely, but it'll help us quite a bit. Well, there's a lie in both of those things. The government, no offense to the government, I'm, I'm a part of the government. The government is not coming to save you. Um, if the uh, worst day comes to pass, and the types of attacks that uh, CC is designed to help prevent or, or at least uh, uh, limit, if that comes to you, there's, there's nobody that can react fast enough and with enough expertise to, uh, to save you in that situation. Not in 2020, and I would imagine not in 2021 either. So don't pretend that some external gov high-powered government entity is going to help you. Uh, you may have a managed security provider, and maybe they're going to help you. But Again, for the types of uh, attacks and the level of seriousness we're talking about, I wouldn't count on that. And we've all seen in NotPetya that uh, companies that have endured losses from that in the hundreds of millions of dollars are now finding that their claims are not being um, acted on by the insurer because the insurer is using the, ex the exception or the exclusion. Uh, this is an act of war. And so they're in court. Uh, never-ending court barrels trying to see if they can get some of the coverage that they thought they had bought for that. I wouldn't put too much hope in the government saving you. I wouldn't put too much hope in insurance saving you. Sort of means you're alone and you're on an island. And if you'll accept that they're in your systems and networks and getting ready to do something and quite possibly do something to you, if you knew you had an option that could help you defend against that, 
and it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't bankrupt you to to de- deploy that option. Not nearly. Uh, you might want to investigate it. Andrew, I think I would make a very good security expert because I always assume that all of my devices have been hacked, even though, frankly, I can't imagine why anybody would be interested in hacking me in the first place. Yes, well, um, it takes a little more to to do security than to, to understand that you've been hacked. I mean, what I took away from, from uh, Andy's commentary there was, was uh, uh, you know, the, the answer to the question that I heard him say was was that governments and businesses have to decide themselves how high to set the bar. They have to decide which consequences are acceptable, which ones are not. They have to evaluate for themselves the strength of their defenses and you know what kinds of attacks are still going to get through because there's always a kind of attack that is going to get through. They have to evaluate the the uh, the difficulty of those attacks. Uh, you know, against the the strength of their defenses, against the consequences they're trying to prevent. This is this is basic business risk management. The other point that I heard him make that I thought was very important is that when you set the bar, uh, you need to set that bar as high as your business needs the bar, because nobody's going to save you from attacks above the bar. You know, the attacks below the bar are the ones that you think you have under control. The attacks above the bar are the ones you don't have under control. He's saying you can't you know, punt to the insurance company and expect that they're going to save you. You can't punt to the government and expect that they're going to save you. They can't respond fast enough to the kinds of attacks that people worry about in, in uh, you know, with, with serious consequences. So, you know, that's the first, that's really the first time I've heard any any uh, authority say that as, as clearly as he just did. So that, you know, that was big news for me. I understand you're writing a book. I, you know, can you talk about when it's going to be available and how people get get hold of it? And if they're interested in the topic, is there anything they can get hold of before your your book hits the streets? Yeah, um, the book is just about done. I'm saying these words to you in February of 2020. Uh, targets to get to the publisher within a month or two, and to have it be out and ready for uh, purchase and consumption by fall of this year, fall of 2020 going to be about 275 or 300 pages from my last talk with the publisher. And um, it will be a technical book, meaning it's going to tell you in some level of detail how to go through the four phases of the methodology. Uh, But it's also going to have a couple chapters that are business case oriented uh, that uh, should help inform and perhaps persuade folks that have not yet been persuaded that they may need to do, they may want to look at doing something beyond standard cyber hygiene best practices that they're doing today. Don't For folks that don't want to wait until the book comes out, uh, right now there's both a website uh, and there's training that you could take advantage of. The uh, website, I'll, I'll spell it out for you, it's inl.gov slash cce, pretty, pretty simple uh, uh, URL. And then the, uh, we've just stood up uh, with funding help from the Department of Energy uh, two training courses. One is a two-day orientation class for anybody that's interested called Accelerate. And that's at INL, but it also travels. It looks like this year we'll be doing one or two a month. Uh, we just did one the last uh, this past week. And then uh, we're doing something more heavy duty, uh, which we will refer to either as team training or boot camp. And it's much more intensive. There's extensive prerequisites for it. Having a solid engineering and operator and and cyber background 
uh, these folks are going to get pounded on pretty hard. And if they survive, then uh, they will be part of the cadre that can go around and deliver CC engagements to uh, some of the uh, most important organizations in the, in the country. We like to leave our guests with the last word. Is there a, a thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Ever ever since I started uh, speaking about CCE and uh, whether it's in a conference forum or an article, podcast, um, one thing that the press will pick up, and uh, no offense to the press, I'm mainly referring to the people that write the headlines, not the body of the article, uh, is they'll say, well, the minute they hear the word analog, uh, they'll go, ah, this is retrograde, backwards, backwards. Uh, we're going back to the caves now and throwing away cool, cool technology that's proven so useful to us. So I always have to counter that. And then one of the headlines in, from that uh, era a couple of years ago was, uh, this is uh, CCE is an attempt to dumb down the smart grid. And so I always have to say, no, 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 <laughs> it's not that it's not the thrust. That's not what it, it, should, it will accomplish. It's uh, in a sense, a, a way to deploy the smart grid in, in that example um, with more confidence that should adversaries decide to try to cause grievous harm to the, the, uh, the technologies and the, the systems that, that it depends on, that they will be, they will be better protected um, in ways that they're, that they're not now using standard cyber hygiene. So please keep doing cyber hygiene. Please do it enterprise-wide and to the best of your ability with ransomware, uh, seemingly striking everywhere and starting to potentially peek into OT. Um, there's a certainly ample business reason to uh, be at your very best on cyber hygiene. CCE is simply uh, for companies that are likely targets of the most sophisticated attackers out there. And these days that doesn't, isn't limited to just nascent states. Just to let people know there's things they could do now that can really take uh, they can take what we say is the targets off the table to make sure that the most important things that your company relies on, uh, even if they're targeted, uh, can be much better protected and likely weather uh, the, most, the most potentially damaging attacks. Andrew, in this episode, I have a last word prompt for you. Have you seen CCE applied out in the wild? Have you heard people talking about it? Uh, can you give examples past what we've just heard from Andy? I have not seen it applied. My understanding is that, you know, it's been applied to some classified projects, and this is part of why he was reluctant to talk about it, you know, in the early days. Uh, it's recently been applied to, uh, it sounds like, more civilian projects, and he's able to talk about it more. So I've been hearing about CCE for, I don't know, going on three years now. And when I first heard about it, I thought, that's interesting. And I went to the INL website, and they had like one page on it with three paragraphs describing it. It was it, There was nothing there. Um, you know, another, I don't know, 18 months later, um, uh, Andy published an article in, Har in, in I think it's Harvard, Harvard Business Review on the, the methodology. And that, you know, gave me some insight. Um, but really, uh, Andy's description here is the first time I've had CCE explained. It's the first time I've, I've you know, got any real insight into uh, what is it over and above the, the Harvard Business Review article that, that kind of read a lot like the, uh, the security PHA review. So he's, you know, he's made it clear today how, how it, uh, it differs from, from just 
focused on safety. And I'm grateful for that. I very much look forward to, to reading his book and, and uh, you know, getting more of the, the, the detailed picture. Great. So it's time for our very first listener feedback session. Andrew, did we get any feedback since our last episode with Robert Pitcher from Canada Public Safety? Yes, we have a question from Mike in New Jersey. Um, he's asking if we could compare the uh, Department of Homeland Security uh, red team, blue team training to the uh, Canada Public Safety uh, awareness training uh, session. Um, I've attended both. Now, this was some time ago, but I, I've double checked uh, with the, uh, you know, the, the course descriptions and they seem uh, very similar to, to when I took them. Um, the Canada Public Safety is one day. The Department of Homeland Security, I think they call it 301. Uh, the red team, blue team is five days. So there's obviously much more in the, uh, the, the American session. Um, the red team, blue team, you learn about, you know, there's a day of, of sort of introduction. Uh, there's a day of uh, defense, you know, learning defenses, learning attack tools. There's a day of an eight-hour red team, blue team exercise where a, a team uh, tries to break into a, uh, an industrial control system that another team is defending, you know, and each team has a set of tools. And then there's a day of, of wrap-up. In the Canadian session, it's not really a, a, a team thing. It is uh, learning about some attack tools and it is applying those tools to an industrial, you know, a, a tiny industrial control system set up at the front of the room. Um, so both, in a sense, are uh, teaching you attack techniques, but the, uh, the American one um, has a, a stronger emphasis on defenses and on, uh, you know, both the... the uh, the attacking and the defending sides, and then you know, on the on the fifth day of the the DHS course, uh, the two sides get together and compare notes and say, you know, we saw you doing this, but we were surprised by that, and and learn from each other. And we're now looking for feedback on this episode with Andy as well. That's right, and we're looking for feedback of all kinds. I mean, if you have topics you'd like us to deal with in future episodes, if you have guests you'd like to hear from, if you've got feedback generally about, you know, how we're doing in the podcast, uh, please drop us a note. If you've got more specific questions about this episode, um, you know, Mr. Bachman's uh, CCE, you know, the, the consequences, the uh, detailed asset inventory, the kill chains, the mitigations, if you have questions about any of that, um, Drop me an email, andrew.ginter at waterfall-security.com. Or, um, you know, see the, uh, the episode announcements um, in, in LinkedIn or Twitter and, you know, attach a note there or a comment there. Or, you know, for that matter, you can just go to the Waterfall website and say, contact us and, you know, drop your, your question there. We would love to hear from you and uh, look forward to hearing from you. And our thanks to Mike for dropping us the question. Sounds like that'll just about do it for Andy Bachman. Thanks to him for speaking with you, Andrew. And as always, thank you, Andrew, for speaking with me. Always a pleasure, Nate. My thanks to all of our listeners for, for joining us. This has been Waterfalls Industrial Security Podcast. We'll catch you all next time. Next time.